Hi, I'm Saul Griffith. I'm the author of The Big Switch and the founder of Rewiring Australia. I grew up in Sydney. My first job was in the steel mill in Newcastle and my second was in an aluminium smelter in Western Sydney. I moved to the US in 1998 and I've recently returned. While I was there, I enjoyed success as an inventor and entrepreneur in Silicon Valley starting technology companies. I've worked extensively with the US government, including modeling electrification of the US and global economy as the solution to the majority of our emissions. I wrote The Big Switch to tell the story of what Australia has to win in rapidly and aggressively tackling climate change. We've been politically lost in a culture war about what we have to lose, and we've forgotten to think about the upside for us. We are still the lucky country, and we can use that luck to lead on climate action. We have the best renewables in the world. We had good governance. We can lead the world in getting emissions to zero. We can lead the world in saving money in our suburbs and towns. We can lead the world in creating jobs and export industries in our regions. We can show by example how to make a better world for our children. Black Ink, the publisher of this book, kindly gave us the rights to read audio versions of the book ourselves. So, we've partnered with a number of legendary Australians, all of them exceptional in their fields, mostly sporting fields, to bring these ideas to a bigger audience. These are people who are no strangers to winning, and for our country and for our children, want us to win on climate as well. I thank them for reading this book with me, for you, for our country, and for our world. Hi, I'm Christine Milne, the Global Greens Ambassador and former leader of the Australian Greens. I'm passionate about protecting life on Earth, and that's why we need to rapidly move to renewable energy. We have to stop burning fossil fuels and address global heating in every way possible. Climate and biodiversity are two sides of the same coin. It's not a climate solution to develop renewable energy to meet ever-increasing demand for whatever we want, rather than for what we need. It's not a climate solution to build renewable energy projects if they destroy forests, habitat for threatened species or migratory birds. To survive, we need to protect and build resilience in ecosystems so that they can continue to, to provide all the life support systems that we need. Habitat, clean air and water, uncontaminated soil, plus drawdown carbon. And that's why it's time to think about what we value rather than what we want. Time and imagination certainly top the list. That's why I'm reading chapter 11. So long and don't kill all the fish. Climate change isn't the only environmental emergency. There's also pollution, plastics, and the biodiversity crisis. We should more actively consider solutions such as mechanisms to promote smaller cars, more public transport, and fewer roads. The rosy picture I paint in this book isn't so naive as to suggest that we can't fuck it all up. We could solve climate change without addressing our plastic waste problems, our falling sperm count, the nitrogen problem, and algal blooms born of modern agricultural practices. 
We could overfish the oceans and collapse critical ecosystems. We could continue to divide terrestrial ecosystems with roadways that kill our precious critters. In the United States, you're never more than 20 miles from a road. I'd bet nearly every Australian has experienced the anguished thud of a roo, possum, wombat or lizard. I remember reading a story about an American soldier in Afghanistan who was taken aback by the damage that goats have done to ecosystems there. Apparently he asked an elderly Afghan woman why the country had allowed goats to eat everything. The story goes that the elderly Afghan woman's response was, why did you allow cars to eat everything in yours? We could get to zero emissions, but still bury ourselves in things we don't need. I've provided a narrative of largely keeping our toys and our hobbies and our institutions and traditions, our way of life, while addressing climate change. I believe we could become better stewards of the world and our fellow creatures. But I don't want you to think I'm a naive techno-optimist. I can see how in solving this problem, we might create the next one. Unless we also learn to recycle our windmills and solar panels, unless we learn to do agriculture without the same level of pesticides and fertilisers, unless we expand the wildlands of the world and give the other creatures of the planet a little more room to thrive. Just to put it all in perspective, consider that all the world's animals weigh about 2 billion tonnes. This is approximately the same weight as all the cars in the world. Only 167 million tonnes are mammals, more than half of which are our livestock. Only 70 million tonnes are wild mammals. That's right, cars outweigh wild critters by something like 30 to 1. That's right. Cars outweigh wild critters by something like 30 to 1. We should probably contemplate that as we make road and vehicle policies. As of late 2021, 1.25 million people had reportedly pre-ordered a Tesla Cybertruck. The Tesla Cybertruck weighs 3,000 kilograms. Those unbuilt Tesla trucks will weigh half as much as all the wild mammals on Earth. They'll drive, most likely carelessly, sometimes autonomously, over roads paved and unpaved, further disrupting non-human life on this planet. Some people see a shiny new electric truck. Others will see a divided ecosystem and a dead elephant. I'd like to register a moderating voice and suggest that we might be best served with some things smaller and some things less. The planet would be more verdant and quieter with more electric bicycles than electric cars, more trams than electric pickup trucks, certainly freeing up wildlands for wild animals by changing our diet would be great. In 1949, the Japanese government made a new class of cars, the K-Class. They were limited to tiny 150cc or 0.15 litre engines and had strict limits on height, width and length. 
These smaller vehicles were given special tax breaks designed to provide families with affordable independence and mobility. In the 1950s, the engine sizes were upped to 360cc, in the 1970s to 550cc, and in the 1990s to 660cc. The maximum power was set at 47 kilowatts. In 2013, K-cars reached their peak of 40% of the Japanese market. Some models, like the Suzuki Jimny, even become popular in foreign markets like Australia. In the rest of the world, vehicles doubled in size. The Land Rover of 2020 weighs double the 1960 Land Rover. The same is true for the Mini, the Fiat 500, most cars in fact. We traded up in size for more speed, more safety, more cup holders, but the cars didn't take us any further. In fact, the speed of traffic in modern cities is falling because of congestion. Australia is likely about to import ungodly numbers of giant electric four-wheel drives from Tesla, Ford, Rivian and others. Our road rules, tax codes and import policies currently favour ever bigger vehicles that use more space, more materials and more energy. We could instead do something like Japan and motivate a second class of vehicles for local streets that are smaller, cheaper and ultimately less damaging. We're making a similar mistake with electric bicycles. Over-anxious government types have limited the power of an electric bike to 200 watts. With modern hub drives, these bikes are quite good, but not sufficient to effortlessly carry heavier loads up bigger hills. I've been building electric bicycles of all kinds, but mostly cargo styles for two decades. They need about 500 watts or maybe as much as 1,000 watts if you want to make them capable of carrying a few kids or the dog and some groceries. Subtly, Australia is preventing a cornucopia of lightweight electric vehicles, e-scooters, e-skateboards, e-bikes, e-mopeds, all of which would provide far cheaper, faster and more convenient local transportation options. Why? We've written the rules of the world for fossil-powered monster trucks. These design and policy choices make a difference. As we move forward with this incredibly exciting energy transition, let's not forget to ask ourselves some hard questions about what we want the world to look like. Wouldn't we all be happier if it was safe for our children to walk or ride to school on garden paths and bike trails rather than dodging 3,000 kilogram bullets on 60 kilometre streets? More walkable cities, more designated wild spaces, more world-managed forestry, more of a lot of good things. But maybe what we need more than anything is more time. I lived in the United States for 20 years. They have precious little vacation time and work too hard. Most families are stressed about work, time and money. Parents drive furiously between work, school, caregivers and their first and maybe second jobs. There's no time left for mending themselves, let alone the planet. Australia is slowly lurching down the same trajectory. If we had more time, 
Would we demand such fast transport? Would we amble to the local shops more often and sit to have a cappuccino in a reusable cup instead of opting for disposable and takeaway so that we can make our next hurried appointment? With more time, would we garden more or contribute to tree growing efforts in our communities? If we're thinking about energy abundance and an abundant Australia, isn't one of the best uses of that abundance an abundance of time? Time to enjoy the natural world around us, to heal it and to heal ourselves. (laughs) 